Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Acts 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who con conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be preaching a foreign, of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him into the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, and that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being." As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to us all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In his book, Peace Child, Don Richardson describes his experiences in the early 1960s uh, ministering and sharing the gospel with the Sawi, uh, the head-hunting cannibalistic tribe on the southern coast of West Papa. Uh, in his book, he has, a, he has an extended section here that I'm, I'm going to read to you uh, that describes his analysis of this particular culture in 1962-1963, as well as his attempts to share the gospel with them. So Richardson writes, Basically, there are two presuppositions I shared with the Sawi. Belief in a supernatural world and in the importance of interaction between the supernatural world and men. The Sawi believed in a hierarchy of disinterested, if not malicious, demons and departed spirits of the dead. I trusted in an infinite yet personal God who loves justice and mercy. The Sawi were convinced that no misfortune happened by accident, but, were, but was invariably caused by demons who could either be activated or restrained by witchcraft. I was persuaded that all things were either commanded or permitted by a divine providence, which in turn could be influenced by prayer. Beyond this point, there was little common viewpoint in our respective worldviews. Here was a barrier even greater than that of language. Somehow, I must bridge the gospel in a meaningful way. I laid out a few notes on the mat in front of me and started in. First, I coined a name for God in Sawi. Myokodon, the greatest spirit. Then I tried to describe him. I explained that he didn't live in just one submerged log or one sago palm like Sawi Hamars or demons, but instead filled the whole sky and the whole earth. In fact, I added, we're sitting here inside him right now. They looked around involuntarily, startled at the thought. In the case of Hamars, I continued, you use witchcraft to keep them from entering your villages, your homes, and your very bodies. But there is no charm, no fetish that can keep Myokodon away. He respects no witchcraft. He is everywhere, and no one can ever get away from him. And a look of defenselessness crossed several faces. And because everything, the sun, the moon, the weather, rivers, jungle, animals, and people are all inside him, he knows all about everything. He knows what everyone is saying, doing, and thinking. We cannot see him, but he sees us. He also controls everything just as easily as you control the movements of your own muscles. Without him, the wind cannot blow, nor the rain fall. The sun cannot shine, nor the moon rise without his power. Neither could plants grow nor babies be conceived without his provision. Line by line, I expanded the contrast between the petty, cynical spirits of Sawi life. Their dread shadow lay over every aspect of the tribe. And the infinite, creative God whose love for justice and mercy has involved them in a profoundly sacrificial pursuit of lost men. I wanted to give them a wide, clear basis for making a free choice between those spirits and God. I spoke of God creating man in the midst of a beautiful, bountiful world, the advent of evil into the human community, the age-old promise of a deliverer, and finally the wondrous appearance of that deliverer. I expanded on the life and ministry of Jesus, trying to establish his reality and relevance to their lives, but without apparent success. The Sawi were not accustomed to projecting their minds into cultures and settings so forbiddingly dissimilar than their own. Only once did my presentation win a ringing response from them. I was describing Judas Iscariot's betrayal of the Son of God. About halfway through the description, I noticed that they were all listening intently. They noted the details. 
For three years, Judas had kept close company with Jesus, sharing the same food, traveling the same road. That any associate of Jesus would have conceived the idea of betraying such an impressive figure was highly unlikely. And if anyone had conceived the idea, one of Jesus' inner circle of trusted disciples would have been the least likely to choose such a course. And yet Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, had chosen to betray him and carried out the dreadful act alone without any of the other disciples suspecting his plot. At the climax of the story, mom, a tribesman, mom whistled a bird call of admiration. Connie and several others touched their fingertips to their chest in awe. Still others chuckled. At first I sat there confused. Then the realization broke through. They were acclaiming Judas as the hero of the story. Yes, Judas, the one whom I had betrayed as the satanically motivated enemy of truth and goodness. A feeling of coldness gripped my spine. I tried to protest that Jesus was good. He he was the Son of God, the Savior. It was evil to betray him, but nothing I said would erase that gleam of savage enjoyment from their eyes. Connie leaned forward and exclaimed, That was real Tuyasani, man. The Sawi were not only cruel, but they honored cruelty. Their highest pleasure depended upon the misery and despair of others. They had long ago passed beyond what they would consider a layman's concept of murder into a far-out lifestyle where treachery was idealized as a virtue, a goal of life. Overt killing no longer held real pleasure for them. They would even risk letting an intended victim escape in order to pursue them. This ideal expressed in the phrase, tui asanoman, which means fattened with friendship for an unsuspected slaughter. That was why the story of Judas Iscariot had aroused them. It it touched the core of their psyche, awakening a deep, almost subliminal response. Judas was a supersawi. And Christ, the object of Judas' treachery, meant nothing to the men in the manhouse. The gospel, if it is to be trusted, must be rightly understood. In Acts 17... 16 to 34, we see that Paul can't simply recite the Old Testament promises of a Jewish Messiah to an audience who knows nothing of Yahweh, Adam, or Abraham. The gospel message had to be contextualized for these Greek Gentiles so that they might rightly understand, repent, and believe. Two points this morning for those who are taking notes. The first is this, see the need and know your audience. See the need and know your audience. See the need and know your audience. Second point, contextualize the gospel as you proclaim it. Contextualize the gospel as you proclaim it. Contextualize the gospel as you proclaim it. All right, first point. See the need and know your audience. All right, so the team has sent Paul uh, about 425 miles or so south of where they were to Athens. Though it had declined from its heights during the Greek Empire, Athens is still a major influential city in the Roman Empire. And as usual, Paul starts his ministry with the Jews. We looked at that in in depth last week. But though Paul starts his Athenian ministry with the Jews who have a biblical worldview, which, of course, we talked about last week, it's a strategy, intentionally targeting those people who were 
looking for the promised Messiah and with whom you could plant a church who shared a, a particular view of the Old Testament. While Paul starts with the Jews in Athens as he has in each city, it's Paul's preaching to the Gentiles here that is the focus of this part of Luke's narrative. And while, for his team to, while he waits for his team to arrive in the city, Paul sees a considerable number of idols, false gods, all devoted to the worship of the Greek gods in the Athenian marketplace. The Athenian marketplace, you could see temple after temple after temple after temple after temple in the square. Idols were everywhere. In fact, the Roman writer Petronius, who lived during Paul's day, uh, was a friend of Nero, uh, wrote this of Athens. Truly our neighborhood is so well stocked with deities to hand, you will easier meet with a man or with a god than a man. More idols than men. Luke writes that Paul's spirit was provoked, and this term, this term provoked, is a term that's used regularly in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, to describe Yahweh's jealousy of Israel when they pursued idols. Yahweh was jealous for his glory, he was jealous for his people, and he was particularly jealous when Israel would chase after false gods. And I think the term has the same meaning here. Paul has a righteous anger, a jealousy for God's glory as he sees idol after idol in Athens, all of them leading people in demonic worship and away from worship of the living God. So, just, we'll stop there. Like Paul, do you see the idols in our culture? Do they provoke you? Amen. Uh, there's a house that I drive by every time I leave in my neighborhood. And uh, they got a little statue of Buddha in their mulch bed right next to their front porch. And, and it bothers me every time. Because I see little kids coming out of the house playing in the front yard. And I'm thinking about these un- this unbelieving couple trusting in a false ideology and passing it on to their children. And it bothers me. Jehovah's Witness building, less than a mile away. Secessionville in Fort Johnson. I drive by, coming to the building, I've prayed against their efforts many times as I've driven by. I hope that you will pray against it each time you drive by. Many Jehovah's Witnesses will be at street corners downtown trying to mislead people away from the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Our neighbors are being deceived by the enemy. That's the reality. They're blind. But many of our idols are not stone, nor gold, nor silver statues, so, though there are some. But they're out there nonetheless. Many people today worship creation while rejecting the Creator, which is why some will get really, really hot and bothered when we start talking about climate change or what have you. Almost all of us have in our pockets or purses what amounts to an idol for untold numbers of people in our culture. More broadly, we're inundated with screens. Our cultures need to be incessantly entertained, distracted, or served. Temple prostitution in the United States may not look like it did in Corinth or like it does in modern-day India, but the worship of sex is now at the tip of our fingers. Temples for some people might happen to be in in D.C. on Capitol Hill or Pennsylvania Street. For others, it may be online retailers like Amazon. Many of the things I've described are morally neutral. But humanity loves to take good or, or at least morally neutral things and then begin to worship them. Because idols, ultimately we control idols. The idols serve us. So the questions for us this morning are, one, do we actually see the idols? Do we actually see them? 
And two, do we see them as Paul rightly saw them? Are we jealous for the Lord? Are we zealous for the Lord? Are we brokenhearted for the lost? So the question is, what riles you up? What gets you going? Doesn't always have to be idols, right? What gets you passionate? Politics? Sports? Brokenness and idolatry in Charleston? Are we provoked to jealousy for the Lord's glory when we see image bearers chasing after idols? Or do we only save our passion for when our team's playing? Are we even bothered when Christ is defamed? Are we numb to the false worship around us? Worse, are we not keeping ourselves from idols, as the Apostle John commanded? Paul had a spirit that was provoked because he really, really loved Jesus. He really, really loved the triune God. And he really, really loved seeing sinners converted out of darkness and into light. We see Paul's love for the Gentiles and and that he knows what they believe. He loves them enough to to understand what it is that they believe. Even in a foreign city, he's, he's done his research. He's been walking around, taking a look at their practices and their idols. After some time preaching to the Jews, Paul now turns his attention to the Greek Gentiles in the marketplace, many of whom were polytheistic. They worshiped many gods. Obviously, Paul's a monotheist. He's one god. And then along with these Greek polytheists, uh, Paul also debates with and seeks to persuade the Epicureans and the Stoics. They were not polytheists. And it's clear from Paul's preaching later that he knows the philosophy of the Epicureans and the Stoics. In fact, he he quotes a couple of Stoic philosophers. So, so that we understand, to understand Paul's message, it's helpful for us to understand the context and the people to whom he's preaching. Because then we'll start to see, oh, that's why he said that. That's why he made that point. All right, so two groups, Epicureans, one. The Epicureans were essentially the Greek deists of the day, okay? While they generally believed that the Greek gods existed, the Epicureans believed that the Greek gods were totally uninterested and detached from everyday life. They had their thing going, and they let humanity go to do their thing. So in many ways, it's like people, particularly the founding fathers of our nation, believing that God just kind of wound up the clock of the world and they just let it go. Or he just let it go and and he's detached. He's not involved day to day in interacting with people. He was hands off. The Epicureans believed only in a material universe. Okay? You are a material being but you also have an immaterial aspect to you and that you have a spirit, right? So Epicureans believed only in a material universe, no spirits, no, no immaterial aspect to our being, nor did they believe in heaven or hell or a final judgment. They were similar to hedonists. Like, hey, you got one life, and then you're gone. All right, so pursue happiness. Pursue pleasure. You're just a collection of atoms and matter that will return to dust. A lot of secular naturalists, a lot of Marxist materialists live in our culture. And they espouse something similar to this. Second, the Stoics. Stoics, on the other hand, they believed that there was a God. They were fine with calling him Zeus. But the Stoics were panentheists. They believed that all things are in God. 
So, they believed that this God, which they, they called the, the divine logos, the divine word, was a sort of reason or a force that permeated everything and existed in all things in the universe. So, like the Epicureans, the Stoics were materialists. They, they denied a spirit. But they did believe, since God was in everything, that everything was an offspring of God, and God was totally imminent. He was near to us, completely. There was no distinction between the Creator and the creature. When people died, they were absorbed back into the divine logos, the divine word, the divine reason, or, or God. The Stoics denied life after death and any final judgment. They believed that passions were to be controlled, and evil was a result of being controlled by our passions. Self-discipline, conquering oneself, was the focus, and recognizing that there was no true right or wrong, but connection to the divine logos, the divine reason, by meditation and developing a general indifference to pain and to pleasure was our main focus in life. So the Stoics share a number of principles and ideas with, with modern process theism or modern Buddhism or Star Wars nerds who really believe in the Force. Paul engages these different philosophies with the gospel and is roundly mocked. Okay, That's what happens when Christians preach the gospel. They call Paul an insulting term. Now, it's translated probably in your, in your Bible, babbler. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that that actually gets to the, the thrust of what they're trying to say about Paul. Uh, the word that, that is used here to describe Paul is the same word that is used to describe a bird that's like pecking at the ground for seeds. Uh, this was a pejorative term uh, used to describe a person who was, who was an amateur philosopher. He was an unsophisticated pseudo-intellectual, like a bird. He, he would go around picking up random things as if to piece it together. He was, a, he was a philosophical plagiarist. He didn't hold to anything himself. He wasn't a thinker. He would just take different things, even if they were incoherent, and try and pull them together. So without saying that he was a complete and total idiot... The philosophers were calling Paul a complete and total idiot. Now, if the brilliant, wise Apostle Paul was called a two-bit philosopher, and if you've read Romans, and you understand that that is not a correct, that is not a correct identity of Paul. If Paul was mocked, beloved, then will be mocked for holding to the same gospel. And that's just reality. Okay? It's God that people are ultimately mocking. It's Jesus in you that they hate. They hated him first before they hated you. And so as you proclaim the gospel, you must have a thick skin and a tender heart. The only way that you'll be able to have a thick skin and tender hearts is by grounding your identity in your union with Christ. If it is our triune God who has told you who you are, then it means very little what other people say about you. That's why Paul can easily say in 1 Corinthians 4, like, I mean, Corinthians, like, how you judge me means very little to me. I don't even judge myself. The Lord is my judge. God has adopted you. And he's called you as his child. He has reconciled you to himself. He has forgiven you for all of your sins because he poured out his wrath on his son in your place. He has justified you, he has silenced the accuser against you by the blood of the Lamb of God. You're united to Jesus, you're hidden in him, he speaks for you before the throne of God. God, the Son, has the final word, beloved, about who you are.
So, what does it matter that other, what other people say? If they insult you, you can say with Spurgeon, uh, they, don't, they don't even know half, half of it. I'm a lot worse than that. Pound these truths into your heart so you'll be ready to respond in love when you're pounded with insults. God loves you. He cares for you. He will never forsake you. And he will hold you fast because you're united to his son by faith. If, if your life, if you're living for you and it's about you, then you will be deeply hurt, deeply defensive when others mock you. Because you got an image to keep. Not remembering that the Lord is conforming you into the image of his son. In verse 18, we see the Greeks still confused by Paul's preaching. <laughs> they believe that Paul is preaching foreign, foreign deities. I want you to notice that he, that's plural. Okay, foreign deities. Because they believe that Paul is preaching two different gods. He's preaching Jesus, this guy Jesus, and he's, and he's preaching anastasis, or resurrection. I don't know who this Anastasis is, and I don't know who this Jesus is, but they're foreign deities, and we'd like to hear more about it. Why, why in the world would they think that? In Greek mythology, various gods often complemented one another. In Athens, in the temple to Athena, obviously the, the god after whom the town is named, Athena had a massive statue of Athena and Nike. Nike is the, the, the goddess of victory which is where Nike gets their unoriginal name. Athena is holding, Athena is like this 40-foot tall statue, idol, and, and she's holding Nike. And so Athena and Nike were paired together. As one scholar writes, personification of abstract concepts found their way into actual cults. Zeus had Thamus, order, and Matus, wisdom, as consorts. His, his daughter is Dike, justice. Athena carries Nike in her hand. Ares, the god of war, is accompanied by Phobos, fear, and Deimos, terror. These Greeks initially thought that Paul simply wanted to add Jesus and Anastasis to the Greek pantheon of gods. Paul was initially misunderstood. And what, is that, what does that show us about the Greeks, and what does that show us about humanity generally? The Greeks can't get outside of their own worldview to hear and interpret Paul's preaching rightly, which leads to confusion. Right? You can, you can imagine Paul saying, what? No! No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not preaching new or foreign gods. It is inescapable. People interpret the world and everything in it through the lens of their own respective worldviews. Today, if you're preaching the gospel in India, this is so common. If you're preaching Jesus as the Son of God, many Hindus won't have a problem with you saying, oh, Jesus is the Son of God, yeah, I'll worship Him. And then, and then the missionary is like, ha-ha, conversions! But what the Hindus will do is simply add Jesus to the list of a hundred million other gods that they worship in Hinduism. And, and that's not a conversion. They're still dead in their sins. In order to faithfully preach the gospel, Paul teaches us that we must strive to tear down false worldviews, but we must also aim to present the biblical worldview in an understandable way. Which brings us to the second point. Contextualize the gospel as you proclaim it. The philosophers now tell Paul, uh, hey, we want to know more about what you're talking about. Because they love knowledge. You can see that in verse 19, verse 21. Paul picks it up. In order to uh, provide further clarity to his teaching, Paul is invited to the Areopagus, which, which is the hill of Ares. If you have a KJV, it's probably Mars Hill, because Mars in the Roman culture is Ares in the Greek culture. So it's the hill of Ares, the god of war, which is an appropriate place since several false worldviews are going to war 
with the worldview of the living God. Paul's about to go to battle. Battle for the hearts and minds of his listeners. During Paul's self-guided tour through Athens, he studied the Athenians' religious commitments and he found an opening for preaching. Verses 22 and 23. Hey, you're, you're, uh, you're very religious. See that? By your billion idols, as I was walking around. Uh, I also happened to notice that you had an altar to an unknown God, just in case you missed somebody. I know that knowledge is extremely important to you, so what's unknown and ignorant to you, I'll proclaim. Paul's preaching is clear, it's contextualized, and it's corrective. So, four, four points of exhortation I want you to take away as you, as you seek to apply Paul's wisdom in your context and, and you imitate him in proclaiming the gospel to others. So first, preach the gospel clearly by sharing a condensed storyline of the Bible. Paul does this fairly quickly. Obviously, Luke doesn't include everything in this that Paul says, but the summary of it, very, very concise. So, when we're preaching the gospel, we need to share a concise storyline of the Bible. Okay, because Jesus makes sense in a story, the story of the Bible. Paul's presentation of the biblical storyline highlights a theme that is very important in the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. In verses 24 to 26, he lays the foundation for the one God of the Bible, as the only creator of all things. God alone made the heavens and the earth, not some Greek pantheon of gods. God made humanity special. We are his offspring, his, his image bearers, and he made us to know him and to pursue him. Yet we have disobeyed him and merited his judgment. That is coming. Though God overlooked his, this ignorance prior to this present age of the Son, but now he demands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from evil and unrighteousness, to turn from idolatry, and to turn to this man, Jesus, by whom he will judge the world in righteousness. This Jesus will be the judge on the last day because God has raised Jesus from the dead. All who trust in this Jesus will also be raised from the dead to new life in him. Creation, fall, Redemption, new creation, is an important biblical theme that picks up on all the necessary components of the gospel. And Paul nails each one of them in a way that his Greek hearers might understand. So, as you're sharing the gospel, whether it's kids or coworkers or family outside the house or fellow students, neighbors... You need to be able to concisely summarize the Bible storyline to others as you share the gospel. Following the Bible's own presentation and redemptive themes helps make sense of Jesus to those with no Bible background, which is increasingly common in our culture, in our post-Christian culture. So, we've talked about this before, I've encouraged it before, we've done it in an evangelism class God-man-Christ response. God-man-Christ response. That's a helpful way. Helpful way to think through the biblical storyline, and it provides a framework that makes sense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got you to tell people who God is. You've got to tell people who man is. You've got to tell people who Christ is, and you've got to call them to respond. So don't assume people know why it's important that Jesus died on the cross. Don't assume that, that, that they would understand why that's necessary. Don't assume that people even know what sin is. We're sharing the gospel and we often use Christian language, you know, biblical words and terminology, and then we go out and we talk to unbelievers who like, what are you talking about sin? 
I mean, I've got maybe a context based on what you're saying, but like, I don't understand what that is. Sin, disobedience, moral rebellion against God. Don't believe that, they, that unbelievers in our culture believe that God created the world. Don't use Christian terminology that you also don't define for them. Christian terminology, biblical terminology is great. Just make sure that they understand it. Define it for them. You know, talk to them like they're a five-year-old in terms of Bible, right? People, if they don't understand you often, particularly in our culture, they will nod at you and they will not know what you're talking about. All right, second. Make clear, relevant connections with your listeners as a bridge to the gospel. Clear, relevant connections with your listeners as a bridge to the gospel. So, Paul's talked about, hey, there's this unknown idol. And then Paul quotes two different Stoic poets or authors teaching his listeners that that it's correct to see the, the unity of the human race. It's correct to see us as God's offspring and image bearers. It's correct to see that in God we, lo- we live and move and have our being. It's not wrong to point out those aspects in our unbelieving culture that accurately reflect the Bible. It's not wrong. It's good. It's helpful. Now, granted, not all cultures will reflect equally biblical truth. I mean, this is, I, I mean, I can't believe that this is like, controversial, but different cultures have been, to varying degrees, shaped by the Bible. And so, I'm sorry, but like, Western culture has been deeply shaped by Christianity, and in 1960, West Papa, people were eating each other. They were murdering one another. They had no concept of forgiveness. Betrayal was their highest virtue in in the Sawi tribe. That's not the same as an unbeliever in in Western culture who's got some kind of framework for for the God of the Bible. So we find these bridges, okay? It it shouldn't surprise us that there's a greater understanding of biblical realities here and more Christian influence here than maybe, say, like Afghanistan or Sudan or Venezuela or North Korea But there are still general revelation realities. We think about Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. This God's revelation of himself that is seen by all people everywhere. Right? General revelation doesn't save. We need the gospel of Christ preached. We need the word, which is special revelation, to be taught. But there are general revelation realities that all people can understand that can still be used as helpful bridges and metaphors in sharing the gospel. Eleanor Young, she was a Bible translator to the Kemyal tribe. We talked about them last week. First, just to, just to toot Eleanor's horn, a uh, woman had polio and went to West Papa. She was carried around by tribesmen everywhere and helped to translate large portions of the Bible for them. And because she was carried everywhere, like she was often privy to conversations that the Kimyals would have with one another that they wouldn't normally have around a foreigner. So she writes this, Kimyal culture had no concept of forgiveness. How are you going to preach the gospel when the people are like, what are you talking about forgiveness? Kimyal culture had no concept of forgiveness. Revenge was their top cultural virtue. Finally, I heard a story from an attempted raid uh, that morning. It, it gave me the perfect phrase. Kurapun Kimyal pastors and elders had heard that warriors who hated the gospel were coming over the trail to attack the Christians. The church leaders armed themselves with bows and arrows and hid in the bushes at a certain spot in the trail. At the right time, they jumped out of the bushes with their bows drawn, surrounding the would-be attackers. When those men, the attackers, were thoroughly terrified, the church leader said, in the name of Jesus, we relax the bow. 
What a perfect picture of forgive. My translation said, God relaxes the bow drawn against us. It is necessary for us to know our culture so well that we might know how to rightly apply the gospel to it. So in your conversations with unbelieving friends and family, look for these common points of connection. Since people have been made in God's image and God has revealed himself generally to all people through his creation, there will be points of connection. But you must work hard to find them. This reality requires deep thinking, a lot of discussion, and practice, and actually evangelizing. As terrifying as that is for some. Our third point, correct errors as you provide a positive case for Christ. So correct the errors that these people are believing as you provide a, a positive case for Christ. In other words, like Paul often says, hey, put off and put on. It's not just enough to say, hey, stop doing that. But stop doing that, start doing this, okay? Put off that false worldview. Put on the gospel, okay, in our evangelism. Paul provides numerous critiques while he puts Christ forward as the only hope for the Greeks. And he, he didn't have to make a point of saying like, hey, you say this and, and it's actually this. Just by sharing the gospel in a particular way, he is making statements that the Greeks would have been like, wait a minute, that's not how I see things. That's not how I understand the world. So contrary to the thought of the Greek polytheists, like obviously uh, one God, one God of the Bible, that's a big one, only one God, he has made himself known, he isn't an unknown God amongst the pantheon of Greek gods. Contrary to the polytheistic Greek Gentiles, Paul argues that this one God is the creator of all things. It wasn't the Titans, it wasn't the Greek gods, it was God who created all things. Contrary to the Greeks, this God isn't simply a foreign deity. He's not the God of some land over here. He's not the God of some tribe over here and, and will do, do battle with the Greek gods. He's not like the Norse gods in northern Europe who will then do war with the Greek gods. No, 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 no. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the creator of all things including the Greeks themselves, he commands all people everywhere to, to repent. Why? Because he has authority over all of creation. He isn't the judge of just a little area or a nation. He's the judge of the entire world. Contrary to the cult of Greek mythology, this, this God doesn't live in man-made temples. He doesn't need anything from, from people. Rather, men live in a God-made world. Mankind needs everything from him in order to live. Contrary to Epicurean thought, he's not, he's not a, a detached God who, who, who ignores humanity. Rather, he, he provides us all everything we need at every moment, all the time. He, he's not just high above us and, and transcendent. But he's also imminent. He's near to us. God is actually not far from each of us. Verse 27. And he desires that we would seek him since he made humanity in his image and we live as his offspring. Contrary to Greek cultic thought, if humanity is God's offspring and creation, then idols don't reflect him. We do. Idols are worthless and they're ignorant. Idolatry is disobedient rebellion against God. And, and contrary to the Stoics and Epicureans, there is, a, there is a standard of righteousness that exists because the man Jesus is going to judge the world in righteousness. We, we weren't made simply to pursue pleasure or to deny passions, but to rather find our delight in God. Contrary to the Stoics, this creator God is distinct from his creation. We aren't in God in the same way that, that the Stoics are describing. 
He is distinct from us. That This God is the Lord of all creation. There was a time where creation was not. Where creation did not exist. Only God. The creator has always been, not as, not as a force, you know, Jedi or Sith nerds, no, no reason alone, not some just impersonal reality, but he exists as a triune God, three persons, one divine nature, who speaks and acts. And while the Son of God is the divine Logos, the divine word, as explained in John 1, this, this phrase certainly isn't used in the same way by John as the Stoics use it. Jesus, the Son of God, is the divine word. He is the true and full revelation of God himself. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. Don't look at an idol. The Logos, the Word, has become flesh and dwelt among us, and all people will be judged in light of this man, Jesus. So contrary to the Epicureans and the Stoics, we exist after death. We are more than matter because we will continue to exist as spiritual beings as we await the physical resurrection. When people die, they they won't be absorbed back into God, but rather stand in judgment before Him. It's important for us to be able to correct our culture with the the gospel so that people might rightly understand it. Fourth, your preaching must demand a response. Paul presents the gospel in a way that reflects the God-man-Christ response pattern. Right? We just said that. This is who God is. Boom! You're creator and God over all things. This is who man is. Boom! You are his offspring. Made in his image. Made to pursue him. This is Jesus. Boom! The man whom God will judge all people everywhere. God has commands for all people to repent now, to turn from disobedience and unrighteousness and look to this man whom God has raised from the dead. This is the right response. Boom. You need to repent and believe. Pursue this God alone. Trust this man alone. Jesus alone. Put your hope in the future resurrection. There is no other man or God by whom the world will be judged. No other man or God through whom you can escape a guilty verdict in this judgment. No other man or God that God has raised from the dead to live forever. No Greek God will be the judge on the last day. All of the Greek gods will be judged by the living God on the last day. At the end of the day, in all of our gospel sharing, we must be sure that we are calling people to respond, not just telling them true things about God and Jesus. Ooh, and this is hard. Oh, this is hard. This is where it gets real personal. And our preaching and our evangelism, it's got to be different than the demons. We can't just tell theological truths. We can't just tell gospel truths. The demons would say, yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. I agree with that. Where the gospel, where the gospel offends and where demons don't go is, you must repent and believe in this, son, or you will perish. The gospel demands a response. God demands repentance and faith. Judgment is coming. Now is the day of salvation. Don't simply tell people about the gospel. Call people to respond to the demands of the gospel. It is God who is demanding it. God who is demanding it. Okay? It's okay for you to demand it. Because ultimately it's the God who has saved you, made you new in Christ, and who has commanded you. Call people to repent and believe in my son. You're just the messenger. You're just the ambassador. Like, take, don't take it personally. Like, hey, I just represent the king, and I love him, and you've got to repent and believe. Like, on the last day, everyone will kiss the son and bend the knee, whether you want to or not. Today is the day of salvation.
unbelieving friends, if you, you do not believe the gospel of Christ, if you don't believe that what the Bible is true or what the Bible teaches is true, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by this God-man Jesus. And I would just, I would plead with you, all of the children who hear the gospel day in and day out, please turn to Jesus and repent. You will not escape because you're young. You will not escape because you do good things. You will not escape because you had a perfect Sunday school record. You will not escape because you're a great citizen. You will escape because you were hidden in Christ. And he stands for you. And he was your substitute under God's wrath. And the demands of this gospel salvation is to repent, turn away from sin, turn away from moral rebellion, turn away from disobedience to God, and believe Jesus. Trust him. Don't just believe true things about him. All the kids here, I know a lot of you are like, I believe true things about Jesus. It's more than that. Again, demons believe true things about Jesus. Trust him. Trust him. Paul effectively preaches the gospel so that people will understand it in that particular context. Uh, D.A. Carson writing on this, on this passage correctly writes, In a world of finite gods, often supported by one pantheistic deity, cyclical views of history, sub-biblical understandings of sin, multiplied idolatry, dualism that declares that all is material to be all that is material to be bad and all that is spiritual to be good, tribal deities, and not a little superstition, Paul paints a worldview of the true God, a linear view of history, the nature of sin and idolatry, impending judgment, the unity of the human race and the oneness of God, all as the necessary framework without which his proclamation of Jesus makes no sense. What does this mean for evangelism today? Today we have a lot of people who affirm many of the same ideas as these Greeks. Materialism and naturalism are rampant. Only what you can see, touch, and experience is real. There is no spiritual world. There are no miracles. There is no God or anything like that. Then you've got Buddhist and New Age folks who are all like God is in everything and then self-denial, meditation, other practices that help you to tap into the energy of the universe so that you might become one with it. There is no creator-creature distinction, only universal consciousness. There are a variety of, of Gnosticism today, the early church heresy that argued that only your spirit was important, your material body is of no consequence, only the spirit will last forever, and it was the true you, the inner you is the true you, not your body, because your body was just a vessel of the real you. Where do we see this? Much of the postmodern LGBT, QIA+, all the things, community ascribes to this belief system. A gay or trans person's mind and desires, not their physical body, reflects the real person. It doesn't matter that same-sex behavior doesn't work. It doesn't work biologically. It doesn't work anatomically. It doesn't matter that you're not supposed to use your body parts in the way that same-sex advocates use them for their own gratification. It doesn't matter that there's a clear gender complementarity between male and female. None of that matters. They argue because your mind, your spirit, your desires are the real you. So you do what you want with that physical vessel you've got. If you believe on the inside that you're a different gender, then change your gender. Friedrich Nietzsche, Mikhail Foucault, Jacques Derrida, the forerunners and founders of postmodernism, tell you to use your words to construct your own reality. Words are power. All of reality is simply language and power, so use your words and speech to dominate and exert power over others. Deconstruct the systems of thought that people try to force on you like Christianity. Force people to bend to your will through speech. Make them use your preferred pronoun because when they do, they affirm how you've constructed the world. If we understand that people today are simply parroting the philosophy of the past few hundred years, 
will begin to understand why someone, someone who identifies as gay or as trans is deeply offended when you call them to repent and believe the gospel. Why? In their minds, you're not telling them to repent of an action. You're telling them to repent of who they are. You're telling them to repent of their human identity. A couple of just quick exhortations. I I would encourage you, I mean, I'll leave it to your conscience, I would encourage you to avoid the language of heterosexual and homosexual. Why? Because it communicates that sexual preference, sexual desire, is a core component of your identity. And when you say someone is a homosexual, you are telling them, yeah, your sexual preference is a core part of your identity. The Bible does not talk in terms of sexual identity. It talks, it speaks of action. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. You either do wickedness or you do righteousness, depending on your covenantal connection, either to Adam or in Christ. And it wasn't until within the past couple of hundred years that this transition from describing same-sex behavior in terms of, in terms of action, historically we've called them sodomites, or man-betters is what Paul calls them, and he moved it to homosexual. Oh, that's who you are. You are more than the sum of your desires. You, you are made in God's image. You want to talk about identity? The, the, the Lord establishes your identity in Genesis 1, 26, 28. You are made in God's image, male and female. That's the only distinction. Everything else is socially constructed. That's true. It's not necessarily wrong. And then further, you're either in Adam or in Christ. So, if you call someone to repent, and, and they identify themselves as one who participates in same-sex behavior, they're going to they're gonna be deeply offended because they can't repent of who they are, and they're certainly not going to let some patriarchal, cisgender, heteronormative, white supremacist evangelical use your words to dominate them. Which is why you have to say, no, it's not my words, it's God's words. The only one who speaks things into existence and it actually works is the Lord. He said, let there be light, and there was light. In Romans 4, Paul says, the same God who spoke creation into existence speaks new creation into existence. They don't understand that human identity is grounded in the reality that they've been made in God's image. Islam, a modern-day Christian heresy. It's a philosophy that argues that Allah is one God and one person, not one God and three persons. The Trinity, they, re- they reject the Trinity. Uh, Muslims have no concept or framework for substitution. They, they don't understand substitution. But as a result of Allah being one God, one person, Allah had no experience of fellowship, community, love, justice, or many other divine attributes until he created the world and people in it. Who was with Allah before people in creation? No one. Not until he created the world could he love someone and be loved by someone. So in Islam, whether they will tell you or not, God is dependent upon creation. In order to at least act upon his supposed attributes. These philosophies and many, many others exist today in our culture and world. You need to be aware of them. You need to know them so that you might be able to faithfully proclaim the gospel to these people in a way that they understand. Paul knew his audience. You need to know your audience. You need to know them well. We need to exegete the scriptures. That is primary. That's foundational. But we need to exegete the culture. We need to understand the culture. And interpret the culture so that we might proclaim the gospel in ways that correct our culture from its unbiblical assumptions and commitments. Uh, so in the early 60s, Don Richardson had a problem when the saw we saw Jesus as the hero of the story. He was like, what, what in the world? Like, right is wrong, black is white, everything's up, upside down, everything. 
But as Richardson lived amongst the Sawi, he was exposed to a Sawi practice that served as a key spiritual metaphor for explaining the gospel. If a Sawi wanted to stop the regular killing that took place between his village and another Sawi village, a Sawi father could offer up his own child as a peace child. The child would then grow up in the other village, and as long as that child remained alive, there would be peace between the two villages. So Richardson taught that Jesus was God's peace child. That God offered him up for us so that there might be peace between him and his people. And when the Sawi understood Jesus as God's peace child, their view of Jesus totally changed. And then their view of Judas Iscariot totally changed. Because Judas Iscariot had betrayed the peace child. That was the worst act you could do. Nothing, no, no, no saw we would do that. So when they realized that all of their past repeated efforts to offer up a peace child never brought true lasting peace. Sometimes the kids died and they started killing each other again. They realized that Jesus is the true peace child because though he died... He lives forevermore because Christ has raised him, or the Lord has raised Christ from the dead. So through this cultural connection, Richardson was able to communicate the realities of sin, judgment, God's wrath, the atonement, and the resurrection. Like Paul's Athenian unknown God, Richardson saw the Sawi peace child as a helpful analogy to teach truths about the redemptive work of Jesus, and many Sawi were converted to Christ over the years. Let us likewise so live and work amongst the unbelievers in our community that we make connections with them in order to declare that Jesus is God's son, he is the king, and he has saved his people. May God help us to faithfully preach the gospel often, and may he draw many people to himself through our efforts.